0: Welcome to The Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week, Broadway's first a cappella musical also has a running theme. Our producer, Sylvia Ryerson, talks with one of the show's creators, Sarah Wordsworth, about how her own running experience helped her create the following storyline in the show.
1: My sort of process as a runner had been that when I ran my first half, it took me nearly three hours, but I did it. Um, And I really wanted this to be a realistic story of somebody that picked up running out of the blue. She was somebody that had been fit in her life, but for running, you know, it was hard for her to finish this, but on a whim, she lotteries for the New York City Marathon as she's gonna get there come hell or high water.
0: Then in the kick, a pair of classic and very hard to find running shoes command the big bucks on eBay and a runner in New Zealand finds a great way to fit some golfing into his running routine. But first, a behind-the-scenes look at an audacious attempt to break one of the most iconic and formidable barriers in running. This past Monday, December 12th, after more than two years of research, preparation and testing, Nike announced their Breaking 2 project. The goal? To break the two-hour mark in the marathon. Three Nike-backed athletes, Eliud Kipchoge of Kenya, Lalisa Desisa of Ethiopia, and Zersene Tedese of Eritrea, have begun the final phase of the project. Earlier this month, Runner's World was given exclusive access to the launch of this initiative, and we're going to share some of that experience with you now. Thanks for joining us.
2: Five to get there.
0: That is the sound of a world-class distance runner finishing up a treadmill test that, at its height, had him running at about 5 minutes per mile pace, all under the watchful eyes of several scientists, biomechanists, and coaches who are all working for Nike. Why all the scrutiny? Well, Zersone Tedesse, who is from Eritrea, is one of three athletes about to embark on a quest that many people think is impossible to break two hours in the marathon. I was there watching Ted Essay do that test, as was Runner's World writer and columnist Alex Hutchinson, who wrote a terrific data visualization piece for the magazine in 2014 that speculated on the nine factors that would have to collide for a runner to run 1.59.59. That's a pace of four minutes and 34 seconds per mile, which is seven seconds faster than the current world record, which was set by Dennis Kometo of Kenya in 2014 at the Berlin Marathon, where he ran two hours, two minutes, and 57 seconds.
2: One last effort, okay, ready? Three, two, one, when you're ready, go.
0: Alex and I were at Nike headquarters with this incredible group of athletes and researchers because we were part of a very small group of journalists who'd been invited in to witness the launch of what's probably Nike's most ambitious project ever. They're calling it a moonshot. And just a word here, our access was contingent upon us agreeing to keep some details, such as plans for when and where this sub-two-hour attempt will actually take place, and also specs on gear, confidential, for a time. But as the project unfolds, we will share as much as we can as quickly as we can, here in the podcast, but also on our website and ultimately in the magazine. We'll begin here from inside one of Nike's most secretive locations. So Alex, it's, it's December 1st, day one of this initiative that Nike is, is calling Project Breaking Two. We are inside the famous innovation kitchen at Nike headquarters outside Portland, Oregon, which is almost never visited by anyone outside of Nike. In fact, we were told that the vast majority of Nike employees aren't even allowed in here. Uh, It's pretty cool to be here at the beginning of this process and 25 yards or so away from us, down the track a little bit, Uh, Olympic champion Elliot Kipchoge is on a treadmill doing doing a test, and we've been spending a lot of time talking with the Nike team and the experts and talking with the athletes and basically just taking in a lot of information, but the basics are that they are formally going after the sub-two-hour marathon barrier, and we now know who the athletes are are. We mentioned the first one, Elliot Kipchoge. Who are the other two athletes that are, that are here?
3: Well, there's a couple of interesting names. One is Zersene Tedese, who's an Eritrean runner, who is the world record holder for the half marathon. So that's a pretty a- appropriate choice uh, because there's a lot of overlap between half marathon and marathon success. He's also kind of famous in scientific circles. He was the subject of a study about eight or nine years ago where it was shown that he had perhaps the greatest running economy, which means he was the most efficient runner ever measured, um, or at least certainly among the, the one or two or two or three most efficient runners ever measured. So he's proven it. He's an he's a Olympic medalist, and he's the world half marathon record holder. But there's also some hints from his previous lab data that suggests he has the potential to maybe be a special marathon runner. And he's taken a couple of cracks at the marathon previously, and they haven't gone well. He's, he's run a couple where he blew up in the last few K and he's run a couple where he dropped out. So the question is, can, can the, the expertise and the resources that Nike is bringing together, can they help him unlock this potential that he's shown in the lab and that he's shown at shorter distances? And the other guy is Lalisa De who's an Ethiopian runner, who's probably best known to North American audiences as, as a two-time Boston champion. He was, uh, he, he won the year of the Boston bombing and, 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 uh, He's also, he's, he's a 204 marathoner, he's, he's run 204, in the 204 40s in Dubai. Uh, and so he's kind of a young gun uh, who tested well. Uh, and one thing that's maybe worth noting is, is, you know Nike has relationships with a lot of very fast runners, both established and up and coming. They, and they sort of ran through their knowledge of all the runners they were associated with, filtered down from a very large number to 18 really promising candidates who they brought in and did testing on uh, and you can hear just in the background the treadmills ramping down Elliot Kipchoge has just finished one of his testing stages uh, but th- they brought in 18 runners to do this kind of testing and the three guys that we just mentioned there's uh, the Elliot Kipchoge and uh Lalissa De Sissa they're the guys who had the best numbers But also seems to have the potential to improve a little bit more, to to get that extra 3% is is what they need to get down below two hours.
0: A quick word about those numbers Alex mentioned a minute ago. Nike was basically testing for three different measurements. The first was VO2max, which is essentially the size of an athlete's aerobic engine. VO2max measures your ability to take oxygen from the air and deliver it to your working muscles for use. It's a measurement of how much oxygen you can supply. The flip side of that equation is running economy, or how much oxygen your body needs during exercise. Running economy basically measures how efficiently an athlete's engine burns fuel. And lastly, there is lactate threshold. When we exercise, our muscles build up a byproduct called lactate. Our bodies also clear lactate from our muscles and put it into our bloodstream. And there is a moment during intense exercise when we cannot clear it as quickly as we are creating it. And that is a very unpleasant and even painful sensation. Your lactate threshold is an indication of how well you can sustain a hard pace over two hours. Okay, back to my conversation with Alex. Okay, so back to Kipchoge for a minute, who is from Kenya. What, what's the list of pros and cons for him as a runner?
3: Well, there's one pretty good pro for Elliott, which is that he's the best marathoner in the world right now. Uh, and that's not just on the basis of his uh, Olympic gold medal uh, a few months ago. He's run some very fast times. He was just off the world record, two, uh, two, 203 low. And he has a pedigree that goes back more than a decade. He was... he. He shocked the world in 2003 as a teenager. He beat Kenanisa Bakili and and Hishamel El-Garouj, the the two greatest runners in the world at that time, at the world championships in over 5,000 meters. So he has top-end speed, he's a very fast, he's a 333-1500-meter runner, he's a 1246-5000-meter runner which is the fourth fastest in history. Uh, He's got pedigree all the way up and then he moved up to the marathon about four years ago after the 2012 Olympics. He's won all but one of his races. The only race he lost was to a world record. Uh, and so he's a man at the top of the game right now. And so having access to to a runner like him, whatever magic Nike can can conjure for their project, they're starting at a very, very high level.
0: Alex, you've thought a lot about this topic. You did a great piece for us about the two-hour marathon and, and broke down the elements of what it would take to run a sub two hour marathon. What is the short list of variables that really are going to make the most difference?
3: Well, there's a couple of different categories. You can think about what, what can the athlete do or how can the athlete be helped? And you can also think about what can change in the way the race is run. And that can, that can include all sorts of things like where is it run? When is it run? What kind of course is it run on? How does the race play out? Because when you have a at a big race like Berlin or or London or New York even, or Chicago, there's a lot of money on the line, and the money goes to the guy who crosses the line first. And that, you know, if, late in a marathon, you, you, no matter how motivated by glory you are, you also can't help but thinking, well, this guy beside me, I need to kind of worry about him because he's going to take away my $100,000. So there's ways of incentivizing the race as well as thinking about the, the you know, if, if you move away from the idea that it has to be at a big marathon and you say, we can hold the race wherever we want, we can, we can choose when, we can choose where, uh, all of a sudden there's a bunch of uh, variables that you can optimize before you even start thinking about what you can do with the athlete. And then, of course, there's things you can think about in terms of training, in terms of the gear they wear, both on their feet and on the rest of their body. And... Uh, nutrition uh, hydration both during training and during the race so there's a lot of levers they can pull and uh, trying to pull all the levers simultaneously is, is the is the way they think they can uh, make this sort of quantum leap to another level
0: so the current world record is 2 hours 2 minutes and 57 seconds Dennis Camato of Kenya ran that at the Berlin Marathon in 2014 so it, it's been a couple years now how optimistic are you that they can take you know essentially three minutes off which is about three percent in the window of time that they're working with here and I I believe in your piece that you thought that the timeline um, a natural timeline right for when the sub two hour marathon would be run was pretty far out in the distance right
3: yeah, so I, you know, I, I blush to say it now, because it may look stupid, but at the end of this, this piece that I wrote two years ago, uh, which sort of analyzed all these different factors, I said, look, my bet at the end, not a, not a, not a calculation, but just a hunch, is that we'll see a, two, a sub-two-hour marathon sometime around 2075. And between the time I wrote that and it went to pre- the time it went to press, Dennis Cometo ran his world record, and I sort of said to people, hey, listen, if I'd known about Kometo, I would have said 2050. But then I stopped and thought about it, and you know, there, there's a lot of, even just without anything fancy, there, there are some really basic things you can do, like I was saying before, about optimizing the course, optimizing the drafting, so the, the wind resistance that they face. These are things that, are, that can be done right away if you have the resources to mold the world to your liking. And, and Nike is a company that has the resources to mold the world to their liking, and they've decided to do this. And it turns out, as, as, as we now know, that they decided to do this more than two years ago, almost two and a half years ago. So they've been trying to figure out in what way they need to deploy their, their considerable resources, and, and they've come up with a plan that they think will get them that 3%. And I, I, whenever I'm making marathon prognostications, my, my, my uniform policy is always bet against anything good happening because the marathon is so cruel that usually what you're hoping for, any given, any given bet if you're any given runner, you can bet that they will be dis- be disappointed with the result. And of course, some people aren't. There's always a winner in a marathon, but it's very hard to predict success because there's so many variables that go in. So the smart money, I would say, is still against us seeing a sub-two-hour marathon. But that's not saying much because the smart money is always against anything happening in the marathon. I now think it's 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 plausible. It's plausible. Whether it happens is, is a different question, but, but I don't think they're... Uh, I don't think they're just sort of making a publicity stunt or 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 dreaming. I think they're 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 going to make a serious attempt.
0: Alex, you were the first journalist that I thought of when Nike invited us into this process. It's a pretty unique opportunity, uh, unique for us. There's a lot of lot of things to think through. I called you to to tell you about this, and and you warned me both before we got on the phone, I emailed you first. You warned me, you have no time to take on any projects. You have so much going on. So why did you decide to do this after all?
3: Yeah. You know, I, I, I think anyone who's sitting in the chair where I'm sitting right now would, would understand the answer to that question. And I think you, you understand it too. And, uh, um, yeah, as, as, as you said, I, I I, I took a solemn vow not to take any assignments. I have a book that's due, that's overdue, in fact, that I'm late on, and I have a couple of young kids, and I feel like l- life right now is, is like a, trying to run a sub-two-hour marathon. It it, <laughs> it it seems impossible, but there are some things you don't say no to, and this is, uh, you know, as we said, we, you know, Elliot Kipchoge just walked past us. He just finished some testing sessions. We've had a chance to chat with him and a couple of other remarkable athletes, and, you know, as running journalists, we get to do that at at big races too so it's not that it's not just that seeing the athletes is exciting although it, it certainly is there's a pretty remarkable team of scientists gathered here not just not just from within nike but they've brought in scientists from outside nike too um it's it one thing to dream about you know I, I, as you said I, I wrote this piece for runners world a couple of years ago which w- was basically an invitation to me to dream about what would it take to run a two-hour marathon and they have the ability or the resources to take every one of those points and say, "Okay, we know what the what the things to be optimized are. Let's let's do it, and let's let's have a team of 20 people. I think they said is 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 basically has been working on this for a couple of years, give or take. You know, there's not people have multiple responsibilities, but basically they've had 20 people devoted to this on a research and design uh, from a research and design perspective. So, I was talking to someone last night about. Uh, the Empire Games in 1954, which is where Roger Bannister and John Landy both broke four minutes. One of the most famous, I think, Runners World called it the race of the century uh, at one point towards the end of the last century. And it's, uh, you know, I've I've had a poster up it um, on my wall. It's sort of one of the iconic moments in in sport, as far as I'm concerned, in history. If this goes through, it's it, this, this is in that in that ballpark. Um, you know, this is this is a chance to get up close to something that is really, really groundbreakingly exciting. One thing I should add is what happens if they run a 201 marathon? You know, there's always a temptation to say, oh, they were going for sub two and they only ran 201. But if you step back for a second, if they run a 201 marathon, that's also groundbreaking. That's amazing. The world record is is almost 203. So, you know, even, and you know, they may well run a 206 or or, or all three of the guys may get injured. So it's not like there's any guarantees, but this is a pretty exciting opportunity.
0: Still, we knew that not everyone would be excited. We fully expected that there would be critics who dismiss this as simply a really ingenious marketing ploy or a gimmick that runs counter to the purity of sport. And maybe there's some truth to those things. Even Nike acknowledges that the sub-two-hour attempt most likely won't happen at a certified official race. It probably, if it happens, will not be a new ratified world record. But that's not what they say they're focused on. They simply want to show that there is human potential to break two hours in the marathon and that they fully expect other attempts to be made over time. They expect a domino to fall and other dominoes to fall in its wake. But of all the things that Nike could spend its Formidable time and resources on, they decided to pick this sub two hour marathon. So I asked Tony Bignell, who's a VP of Footwear Innovation at Nike, just why they were so focused on this particular goal.
2: You know, we're, we're runners who've been around it a long time it's a bit like breaking 10 seconds for the 100 it's like breaking four minutes for the mile it's, if you're um if you're a high school it's like breaking two minutes for the eight hundred. you know like there's those barriers that people bust through and um and it's never been done and we've seen that curve that's got closer and closer to two hours and it's plateauing and plateauing and there's that great debate about, is it humanly possible? Is someone going to smash through it next week? Or is it going to take 50 years? I mean, there's, there's a bit of no one really knows where it is. And I think we, we're just excited to be part of trying to, trying to break that, trying to bring down that record. So is it still an open question to you
0: that everything is going to come together, the stars are going to align? If, if you had
2: to put down a bat, <laughs> do you guys think it's a lock? Or are, are you still unsure? I would say we're unsure, because um, it's not me having to stand on that start line, and there's so many variables that someone has to put themselves through, one of these amazing athletes has to do, but I don't think it's a pipe dream. Like, I think everything that we're doing is setting ourselves up for success, but it's a human body, and it's a a race, and it's sport, and there's all the things that go into that um, that are big variables. The athletes themselves certainly don't consider
0: this a pipe dream. But I couldn't help but wonder just how collaborative in effort this sub two attempt would be. Alex and I had one-on-one time with each of the three athletes and there was not a lot of time when the three of them were together. There was a little bit of time when one was being tested on the treadmill and the other was either finishing up testing or getting ready to start and they were there with their coaches and agents And I'll be honest, they were definitely not walking around giving each other high fives. In fact, the vibe felt a little more cool and competitive than collegial. This is just one of the ways where the human X factor is going to come into play. It's not all about science and numbers and tests. It is three athletes who are setting out to do something that is incredibly difficult to do. And the dynamics of how they will work together or not work together in this attempt will have a big impact on whether they're successful or not. When Alex and I did one-on-one interviews with each of the three runners, we asked them all the same question. In this quest for a sub-two-hour marathon, will they be teammates or rivals?
4: No, We see
0: each other as brothers, as friends, but when it comes to running, we're competitors. So. You want to be the one who breaks two hours. Uh, God willing. I'll do it. That was Lalisa De Sisa from Ethiopia, the 204 marathoner who won Boston in 2013. We asked the same question of Zersene Tedese, the Eritrean world record holder for the half marathon.
3: I'll look at it this way. We
0: are a team. We are one. Our objective is the same. Uh, our preparation and... Uh, the things that we do is individually, but at the end, one of us, if one of us breaks it, it will be a collective win, because one of one of us has done it. But you would prefer to be the one,
3: yeah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna try
0: my best to do that. <laughs> and finally, here's Eliud Kipchoge from Kenya, the top marathoner in the world. Hmm. It's a little bit Important for me to cross, to be the first one to cross. You want to be the one? I want to be the one. I'm not surprised. (laughs) 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 I think it's pretty clear that while these three runners are in this project together, in the end, it's going to be every runner for himself. And so lots of people will be paying attention to these athletes and how the project plays out, but for sure... There will be people out there wondering what all of this means for the running world at large. Why does this matter to weekend warriors, runners like me, who can't run a lap around a track at the pace that these guys will hold for 26.2 miles? Alex and I spent two days at Nike learning about the training, nutrition, and technology that will support this super ambitious endeavor. Many of the details are still under wraps for now, and many others are still, frankly, unresolved. But we did learn that, yes, this moonshot will have relevance to the general running community. It's been a fascinating and inspiring two days here at Nike. And one of the things that we've learned is, is that in addition to it being three of the world's best runners trying to break this seemingly unbreakable barrier, if and when they do that, there will be benefits that will, in theory, trickle down to the rest of us and could help back of the pack, middle of the pack runners improve their own running times because of the improvements in technology and training methods and what they learn about conditions and and race tactics. So really excited to share all of this stuff with with our readers and listeners, and thanks for saying yes.
3: Well, (laughs) thank you for thinking of me, and uh, yeah, I I couldn't be more excited about uh, what's to come.
0: So, we are going to keep following the story over the coming weeks and months. We have lots of unanswered questions, and we promise we're going to ask those questions and share the answers with you. We'll also be sharing many more details of the Breaking 2 project. One other thing we'll be sharing, my own moonshot attempt. That's coming up in a future episode. You'll hear about goal setting, hardcore data-driven training, and even a dose of suffering. For links to Alex Hutchinson's stories, the first being his 2014 data visualization piece about what it would take to break the two-hour marathon, and his first piece about Nike's Breaking 2 project, go to our show page, runnersworld.com audio, where we also have several photos of the athletes in training. One of our favorite things to do here on the show is to look for examples of how running intersects with culture in ways that you don't necessarily expect. In transit just opened on Broadway this past weekend, on December 11th. It's a groundbreaking show in many ways. It's the first ever all a cappella performance on Broadway, the first show with a beatboxer on stage, and as far as the creators know, the first time ever that a long-distance runner has been one of the lead characters in a Broadway musical. That last bit came directly from Sarah Wordsworth's experience of becoming a runner and running the New York City Marathon in 2010. Sarah is one of four writers on the show, alongside Kristen Anderson Lopez, James Allen Ford, and Russ Kaplan. The four are all former members of the same a cappella group, and together, they wrote the book, music, and lyrics for the show. In Transit follows the lives of 11 New Yorkers, navigating the challenges of city life, and it draws from the writers' personal experiences of living in the Big Apple. Our producer, Sylvia Ryerson, saw the show in previews and then sat down with Sarah Wordsworth to learn about how running has influenced her life and her work. To kick off the segment, here's a clip from the opening number of the show.
5: Ooh, deep beneath the city with a thousand other strangers, Cats like driven cattle, speeding. i yeah. yeah. You need I'm So late, ten of eight, hey. waiting. away. They know. know that I got places that I need to go, but, but I'm not there yet. I'm, I'm not, not there, there yet. Still no, three, five, nine, eight, eight, eight. 13 no, minutes apart, so underground, the on a track, in a crowded car, till I get where I have to get.
1: So, you just heard what we call the prologue of the musical In Transit, which is Broadway's first a cappella musical. Um, we're playing down at Circle in the Square, and what's really interesting about that theater is that it's literally deep beneath the city. You go down a couple of flights into the theater. And that song is our entire ensemble of 11 people singing completely acapella in 10-part harmony plus a beatboxer for the entire show. And um, the prologue sets the stage. Uh, we have 11 people on the subway train. And throughout the course of the night, we go into individual songs and stories and sort of follow some New Yorkers um, on a journey to get somewhere.
6: Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about the story of the show and what makes it so special here on Broadway.
1: Well, the story of the show, um, it's really a universal story. And the subway is used as a metaphor for the um, when we all have places that we want to get or to a finish line, um, or we all have this goal that we want to get to or what we think our life should be, and there is an obstacle maybe that we can't control um, in our way and we, and we think we are getting nowhere. Um, so the subway is our big metaphor for that obstacle in our way. And um, the show, the show is a Broadway first, so I'm really excited about it because we're doing, uh, our medium is acapella. And that is the first time that a fully a cappella musical has ever hit the Broadway stage. And it's a musical comedy, though. It's a very, for as being as groundbreaking as it is in form, it's a very traditional musical comedy.
6: And so we're really excited to have you here on the Runner's World Show because um, one of the key plot lines in the
1: story is
6: about a runner. Would you tell us a little bit about Allie's character?
1: Absolutely. What's kind of fun about the musical is that I wrote it with three of my best friends, uh, James Allen Ford, Russ Kaplan, and Kristen Anderson Lopez, and we were an a cappella group years ago. And the show was born out of our songs and our stories, so it's a very personal show to us. Some of it is very autobiographical. And the character of Ally um, was sort of based on me and some experiences I had in New York in my uh, late 20s. And uh, at the time, I was not a runner. And in early versions of this show, Allie wasn't a runner either. She was uh, recovering from a pretty bad breakup and trying to find her way without this guy, Dave. And um, throughout the years, I sort of became a runner on my path to getting the show up in its form off-Broadway, which happened in 2010. But it, it just felt like it was taking so long. And being the type A person that I am... I needed something to focus on and had never run a day in my life. I did uh, the, you know, famous couch to 5K program and from there was just hit by the bug. I loved everything about running. Um, And so along the way I sort of made that a subplot for Allie, which grew and grew and grew and in the Broadway version her story kind of culminates on the day of the New York City Marathon. So tell me a little bit about how Allie's character
6: comes to running.
1: I think that Allie, um, she's just a physically fit person. And what I wanted to do with the, her plot is that it was kind of like me. It wasn't anything she'd thought about doing specifically. She may have run a little bit recreationally. But she came to running, and it spoke to her personality. She did it as a way to fill her time, frankly. When we first meet Allie, she is struggling with filling her time. And she's trying to make plans with friends. And she's trying to read books and get out there take a pottery class, maybe. I mean, she's just doing... She's suffering from this breakup, and she just wants out of her own head. And running is one of the many things she's doing to try to do something. And it sticks for her. It sticks. So I want to play a,
6: a clip from um, from Allie in the show. And um, would you just describe to us what's happening at this moment?
1: Sure. This is sort of a midpoint check-in for Allie. And when we have first met her... She has said, oh, I'm, I'm fine. She's running into some friends of hers on the subway, and they say, how you doing? Are you still with that guy? Did you get our wedding invitation? And she says, oh, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. I'm, it's all good. I moved. I'm running. I'm fine. So we know she's a runner. Um, we don't know how much she has run, but this is the midpoint in the show when we pick up with her, and she has just completed her first half marathon. Allie, oh.
6: <laughs> hello again. Oh, no, Trent, I wouldn't hug me right now. <laughs> I just ran farther than I ever have. Healthy Hipster
5: Half Marathon? (laughs) Since when did you become a healthy hipster?
6: Since three hours ago. I've never done more than a 10K, but I finished. Wow, congrats. Don't congratulate me yet. On a whim, I lotteried for the New York City Marathon and got a slot. Somehow, I'm gonna run 26.2 miles.
5: But that's coming up in- Don't
6: say it. I'm determined to get there. (laughs) But first, I'm getting to Shake Shack.
5: (laughs) You could have two Shack Burgers. You look amazing.
6: I'm trying. Because one of these days I'm going to bump into Dave with the perfect woman on his arm and I need to look my best when I cut her. So tell us a little bit about this moment and um, your writing process creating
1: this moment. (laughs) Sure, well, you know, my sort of process as a runner had been that when I ran my first half it took me nearly three hours, but I did it. Um, And I really wanted this to be a realistic story of somebody that picked up running out of the blue. She was somebody that had been fit in her life, and we find out later that she had started a sports medicine degree and never finished because she dropped out of school to follow this guy to New York. So she was into fitness, she had done some yoga. When we see her in the opening number, she's done a little bit of that. So it wasn't um, out of the blue that she came to fitness, but for running, you know, It was hard for her to finish this, but on a whim, she lotteries for the New York City Marathon, and she's going to get there come hell or high water. And that had sort of been my experience. All running, I just came to it on a whim, and I said, I'm going to do it. And so this is where Allie is right now, Um, but she's still very focused on this guy. She's still having a hard time getting over him, but somehow she's able to get up three or four days a week and train. And I think that without her knowing, she is getting over him but she still thinks she's so caught up with him, but she's getting to goals. She's finishing things and it took, it takes running into her friend to point that out. That's amazing. So let's skip
6: ahead to the next time we meet Allie in her running journey.
1: <laughs> when we see Allie toward the end of the show, um, it's the day of the New York City Marathon and we see her, spoiler alert, she, um, she has a medal on, she's finished the race and she is elated and she's in a different headspace. And um, bam, she runs into her ex-boyfriend on the subway. And um, another spoiler alert, he's with another woman. Dave!
0: Hey, how are Did you just run the marathon?
1: Yeah, I
6: did. I, I ran through all five boroughs. This city is kind of incredible.
0: Well, good for you.
6: I didn't think I'd finish, but I just kept moving. This is just such a stunning moment of seeing Allie's both huge accomplishment and then just being brought back to her past. And talk a little bit about this and your design of this moment and then what happens next.
1: Well, it's interesting because the show had been in development for so many years. And um prior to Allie becoming a runner, she there was always a song for her in this moment called The Moving Song. She runs into her ex-boyfriend on the on the train and would sing this song where she finally stopped for a moment and looked back on their entire relationship and how everything went so horribly wrong and where she was. Um, As the years went on and I sort of developed running as a subplot for her, I edited the song to go along with that feeling in the moment. And um just this summer, and it's funny because you can be writing writing something for years and years and then at the sort of at the last minute put a final touch on it that changes the whole thing. And just this summer I wrote an intro to the song for her that I'm really proud of and really excited about. And she says, I ran twenty-six miles, twenty-six miles, make that twenty-six point two, and finally forgot about the past three years and you. But the sea train got the best of me because there you were at 26.3. And for me, um, you know, what I hope the audience gets out of this is you can go as far as you can humanly imagine you will go and something can still stop you in your tracks. And so um, I wanted Allie to just have that moment where she thought, I did it, I ran so far, but why am I still standing still? So at the end of Allie's song... You know, she's sort of gone through the entire story of her relationship and how she got there. And at, you know, um, at the high point of the song, she's so frustrated. And she says all the endless nights of crying, all the theories, all the trying, all the chasing and devotion. What's the point of all this motion? I'm still stuck here standing still and you're still gone. It's time to move on. And um, it's a really powerful image for me and I, and I hope for the audience because she's standing there with a marathon medal on. And she's finally able to own her journey, both um, getting over the guy and getting through the marathon. And she's able to say, I did it, I got here, and now it's time to move on. And I wanted
6: to talk about why you included the marathon as a plot more broadly, because um, there's really four main storylines in the show. And so this is really one of the main storylines. So why, when you were designing a show that was bringing all of these intersecting characters in New York City, um, why did the New York City Marathon stand out to you as um, something that was, you know, very significant to include?
1: Well, our show is a love letter to New York. And, you know, Marathon Day has come to be my favorite holiday in New York City. It's such an amazing day, Um, And so many people from so many places come and do it. And and if you've ever been able to watch it, it's just amazing, you know, or, and running it was um, certainly for me, one of the biggest accomplishments of my life and one of the most amazing days because you see so much of humanity. And what's interesting is that everybody comes to the marathon for a different reason. And some come just for the sport of it. And some come because they're working through something in their life and some, do that without knowing, you know, they, they um, run and just like Allie, they just think, oh, I'm training to train or to lose weight or to do whatever they're doing. But really, there's some deep seated issues why they needed to finish that distance. And after I'd finished the marathon myself, um, which I ran in 2010, I was able to look back and say, you know, in hindsight, I really think I did that because I needed to work through some other things in my life. And I, that just really spoke to me about this character, Allie, and how was she going to get from point a to point b and i just think the marathon is a beautiful way to have shown her doing that so so what do you think it does for
6: her you know we've we've left her at this this heartbreaking moment off the subway
1: but um but where does it bring her after that well i think in the in the first moment her first thought is i ran through all five boroughs and um there's something about when you're on the subway all the time in new york and that's how you get Everywhere, you are underground all the time. And when you see New York City on foot, it's a whole different experience. And you know, our marathon runs through every borough, and you see parts of the city you would have never seen if you weren't on foot. And I think that Allie saw parts of the city. She saw parts of herself. She's also our New York transplant. Um, Also part of her story is that she followed this guy here from Seattle. She's kind of crunchy. She is not a New Yorker. And, um, you know, I think that what the marathon does for her is also helps her feel like a true New Yorker, helps her see see the world around her in a different way, which is really what all of our characters are doing in the show. They come to see see themselves and the city um, in a whole new light.
6: And I want to play another music clip from the show. This is called Getting There.
1: Describe this number for us. Um this is sort of the 11 o'clock hour number of our show, and it's when another one of our main characters, Jane, has had a similar experience to Allie. She just got completely demolished en route to her goal. And um, our, we have a beatboxer in our show, um, and his name is Boxman. And it's also the first time that the art of beatboxing is um, featured in a Broadway musical, and we're really excited about that. But he's a subway performer, and he struck up a friendship with this character, Jane, and uh, she she meets Boxman on the subway at a time where she is at her lowest, and she says, "I just don't know what to do anymore. I've done everything I can and I don't know what to do." And he says, "Then Jane, just be on the A." And then she sings this song because she hears she stops for a moment. She stops for the first time and listens to the symphony of the city around her. Kettle, these
0: people colliding.
5: just ignore
1: One of of the huge themes is, how are you going to get where you're going if you don't know how to be where you are? And running definitely fits into that, because my experience as a runner had been, it doesn't matter how fast or slow you go. It doesn't matter, you know, if your training mirrored the exact prescription for training that you had in, you know, sitting on your desk or wherever it was. Um, You get there. You get there in your own way, in your own time. But the entire time, you aren't nowhere. You know, I mean, for Allie, for Allie specifically, you know, she's running these miles and she's training and running these miles and she may only be at mile two, but she's gotten somewhere and mile two will get her to mile three and mile three will get her to mile four. So um, I think it's a message we all we all need. It's certainly universal that that um, we can try and try and try to get somewhere and still feel stuck. And um and for Allie you know she gets to 26.2 miles and still feels stuck and she has to look at her life and say but is there a way forward and what's that way forward?
6: I wanted to talk more a little bit about your own artistic process and how running fits into that and when you are working on this show how is your running routine sort of a part of your creative process?
1: Well I definitely call myself a recreational runner. Um, And when I first picked up running, like I said, I started with the couch to 5K. And then over the course of about a year and a half, made it to my first full marathon. Um, And as a writer, it was such a release going out on runs because it was really a time for me to clear my head. And I also carry my iPhone when I run. And I've always um, just felt free to put in voice memos anytime I think of lyrics, it it was just a, it was really, I wasn't prepared for how freeing it would be for my brain. Um, And when I first picked up running, I was really lucky to live pretty close to Central Park. And um, it was a way for me to get in touch with nature. And that freed up my creative process so much. And so being able to bring in my running experience to a character has just been so incredible. You said this was the first running character on Broadway, is that right? I think it might be. I have to do some more fact checking on that, but I can't remember a Broadway musical that really featured a long distance runner. Um, And I think it's pretty special. You know, there's so many, so many runners out there and and I just had no idea what the community was like until I got in. And and the other thing is um, I want to give a shout out to the New York City Galloway training group, which is where I found a home when I knew that I wanted to run a full marathon, but had no idea how I was going to get there, I joined that group. And um, while I was in rehearsals for the off-Broadway production, I would go on these long runs, you know, like our 18-mile training runs, and then I'd go to the theater all day. And it was so great because these people from all walks of life, from outside of the theater community, would say, how's the show going? And it was a chance to get off my chest all of the things I was dealing with or talk about it in a different way with um, people that weren't in the theater, which was so important. And um, as a as a writer and as a person in the arts, sometimes you can, you can do everything, quote, right. You can follow every prescription for how to get to the pinnacle of your career or wherever it is you want to be or get that show or get your work produced. And it just doesn't work out on a schedule. It's really out of your control. And running for me, I really... I'm so type A that I needed something in my control and I think that's why it spoke to me so much. I had this schedule and if I did, you know, a long run every Saturday and I did my training runs during the week, I put them in my calendar, I knew when I was going to do them, I knew where I was going to do them and I made it to that finish line. So for me it really um, influenced me in my writing and in my artistic career to say, just keep going and you'll get somewhere, just keep going.
6: And as you said, you started running later in life. When did you start, and what was it that made you first do that couch to 5K? I have no idea.
1: Um, (laughs) I have no idea what made me do that, because I was that person in um, gym class that when they said, "Okay, everybody runs a mile today, I'd get a doctor's note and get out of it, you know? Um, I, yeah, running was not something that I ever wanted to do or ever thought I could do. I had a roommate, Andy. um, She was a runner. And I, you know, I think like theater, you have to see it to be it, you know. And I just kind of um, watched her doing it. I thought, could I ever do that? But I have no idea what made me do it. Just one day, I woke up in the morning and said, I want to do a 5K. I just want to try. And um, you know, truthfully, that title, Couch to 5K, spoke to me because I thought, here I am on my couch. I wonder if I could get to the 5K. Um, But it's been an amazing thing in my life. And since I've run my two marathons, I've since had a baby, and the show has gone to Broadway, which is a grueling schedule. Um, And so I haven't run long distances for a few years, but it's something that I always go back to. And three times a week, at least, I lace up my shoes, and I go out there for at least 30 minutes and, and touch base with that part of myself. And I wouldn't trade it for anything.
6: The other thing that really struck me watching the show was um, what a marathon it is for the performers, the cast, (laughs) being an acapella show. They are the orchestra, the duration of the show. Um, Would you just describe a little bit of the endurance that takes and what, what that means to be an all acapella musical?
1: Yeah, we're so excited because we have this groundbreaking sound design on Broadway as well. We are the first Broadway show to ever use double in-ear monitors, um, which is a technology that's used a lot in rock concerts, so that you can sort of um, get all of the ambient noise out of your ears and just hear um, the music in, in sort of in your head. And we're using that because in an acapella show, and we are in a three-quarter thrust theater at Circle in the Square, you can't see the conductor, they hear him. And no matter where you are on stage or backstage or anywhere, you still hear the mix of all your other 11 singers making the harmony. So it is a marathon. Our actors never get a moment of rest in the in the entire musical. You know, like the marathon, the gun goes off and off they go and they don't stop until the very end. Um, and they have to support one another. They have to pace themselves. It really is very similar to running a marathon. One thing I thought was so incredible reading about the show
6: was how even when one of the ensemble members might be off stage, they're still singing the entire time. If they're like changing outfits or um, Mm -hmm. moving into a new scene, they are just singing nonstop.
1: Yeah, because our actors are the orchestra. They also not only provide the backups for every song in the show, but they provide all of the underscoring, all of the scene transition music, and they still appear in a new costume every time they walk on the stage. <laughs> so um, they are backstage singing backup harmonies while they change their clothes. And we have an incredible running crew on this show. Um, all the backstage personnel, the people that you don't see are really the heart and soul of the show, um, keeping what's on stage looking and sounding great. And speaking of looking great, there is one cool fact about Ally's costume. I am super excited about this. So in rehearsal, um, in in the scene where Allie finishes the marathon, um, she's, of course, wearing a marathon medal, and she's wearing a race bib, and she's wearing a mylar. And so in rehearsals, I brought in mine from from 2010, and I was so excited to see her in that. But I thought, you know, and on Broadway, we have incredible props, people, incredible resources to make everything looking great in costume designers and costume shops. But... Um, you know, I went to the stage managers one day and we started to talk about it. And I said, do you think we could get a real medal? And um, and they said, I don't know, could we? And I said, you know, I was a member of New York Roadrunners and I ran the marathon. Why don't we ask them? And I have to say, the New York Roadrunners Club, was they were so gracious to us. And they read the script and we talked about the show with them. And we said, you know, the marathon is really painted in a great light here. And we'd really, we would be honored to get a real medal. And um, the day after the marathon, I believe one of our stage managers went there and picked one up. So Allie's wearing a real medal from this year's marathon and a bib and a, um, and a mylar. I love it. I'm, I'm geeking out over it. It's so cool. That is so cool. How often does that happen on Broadway? You know? <laughs> Have you ever
6: gone running with any of your um, crew or cast members in the show?
1: Not yet, but I keep telling uh, our actress, Erin Mackey, she's got to get out there and and, uh, go on a run with me. It would be super fun. Erin Mackey plays Allie, and she just does such a gorgeous job. She is a wonderful, wonderful Broadway actress and singer, and I couldn't be luckier to have her telling some of my story.
6: What are your personal running goals these days? Do you have um, any marathons on your horizon, or half, or otherwise?
1: You know, I'd really love to get back to the half marathon distance. I'd like to do that this year. I had always toyed with the idea of doing sort of a mini try. So we'll see if that's in my future someday. But um, you know, my goals really, who know? I never say never. I always say, I'm not gonna do a full marathon again, but never say never. My group of um, my training friends back from 2010 all came to see the show the other night and they had seen it in 2010 off Broadway. And they came to see it on Broadway the other night, and it was so great to see them. And the first thing I thought was, oh, I can't wait to get back out there with these guys. So I had the great coincidence
6: of running into Erin Mackey on the corner right before coming up to talk with you. And, um, and I was talking with her about the show, and she told me this great story from last night's performance where she sang that line about um, 26, or should I say 26.2 and when she said that 26.2, she got a big laugh from somebody in the audience who really knew what the significance of that point two was. And so I think the show really, um, really speaks directly to a lot of runners.
1: Yes. And Erin um, and I have had a lot of talks about what is that immediate post marathon feeling how do your legs feel how does your heart feel how does your brain feel we've talked about that a lot so um and I was really pleased because my running friends did say oh yeah I saw her make a move you know where she was sort of pounding out her quads after the race and um, yeah I think that if runners come they might get a might get a chuckle um over the reality there's definitely some inside runner
6: runner jokes (laughs) in there um that's great and I just I wanted to end with um I mean this show has such a sort of powerful vision of bringing so many different New Yorkers together and if you see any parallels between the show and sort of the the New York City Marathon itself and sort of what this musical means for New
1: Yorkers but also just our country at, at this moment in time Yeah one of the um one of the ways we like to think about a cappella as metaphor for this show is that you're going along in your own path to where you want to be, but there are so many people singing back up to your song on a daily basis and that you really need them all. And I think that as runners, that's why we, we don't just run sometimes. We sign up for a race and we show up at the start line because there's all these people around you that have a similar goal. And um, for me, in the marathons that I've run, I really needed those strangers around me to get me to the finish line. It's really, um, I'm gonna cry, it's really a powerful thing, sorry, it's a really powerful thing to show up for something for a goal that you don't know if you can do or not and have a stranger say to you, I know you can do it because I'm gonna be beside you. And I think that that's what we need right now in our society, we've gotten so um, inward with our technology, with, just the way that we behave as humans in in our current culture and if we could open our eyes and and look at all the people around us that are part of our stories and part of our songs and helping us get where we want to be and how we're helping them get where they want to be and um that's what that's what in transit's about and I think that that's a lot of what running is about
6: is what it feels like to be here, to be here and happy in the
4: moment ah. and getting there
0: In Transit is now playing on Broadway at the Circle in the Square Theater on West 50th Street in New York City. And now it is time for The Kick with producer Brian Dalek and reporter Kit Fox.
4: Okay, so on this episode, we've talked a lot about Nike and the innovation for the future when it comes to the two-hour marathon. We heard that earlier in the show, but actually a classic piece of Nike gear is in the headlines as well on runnersworld.com. Tell us a little bit about this, Kit.
5: Okay, so earlier this month on eBay, what ostensibly looks like a ratty, muddy pair of Nikes Mm -hmm. appeared. Uh, and sneakerheads kind of lost their minds because um, what it turns out to be are these shoes are probably some of the rarest Nikes ever made. Um, they're called the Nike Moon Shoe. Mm-hmm.
4: And these were used, They like a dozen or so were handed out before the 1972 Olympic trials in Eugene, right?
5: So, yeah, essentially these were the first pair of running shoes ever made by Nike. That have the swoosh on them. Exactly, yeah. and so, um, These shoes go up for auction. They actually sold for $11,200, which is a crazy expensive price, but it's because they're so rare. So, actually, um, these are one of three pairs that have known whereabouts. Mm -hmm. Um, The other two, one is on display enshrined in Nike's main lobby next to the original waffle iron. Exactly, um, kind of you know your shrine to Nike, and the other is actually owned. It's in a safe deposit box in Oregon, owned by this just massive sneakerhead collector, and he was actually the guy that helped sell this third pair. He calls these the Holy Grail of running shoes. He actually
4: had like a a shoe He called
5: it right. Yeah, at one point he had over two thousand pair of rare and collectible shoes, many of them um, Nikes because he's obsessed with Nike and. He kind of calls the moon shoe his crown jewel of his collection.
4: So tell us about the guy who actually had these shoes and gave them up for auction. He was a runner.
5: Yeah, his name was Bruce Mortensen. He ran in the 1972 Olympic trials in the marathon. Mm -hmm. Um, So he showed up to Blue Ribbon Sports, which is the precursor to Nike. Mm -hmm. And an employee was handing these shoes out, uh, and he took one and wore them during the race. Um, said that they were pretty decent. Said they
4: were decent, right? And then, yeah, then he's back home, um, has them in a closet for a long time, hands them off to a store for, like, the display, the story says, but then he just found out that there's more to them.
5: Exactly. He realized kind of how historic they were um, a few years ago, and uh, this summer finally realized that they could be worth a lot of money and decided to um, put them up for auction on eBay with the help of this shoe collector who owns the other pair right. of moon shoes. Right.
4: So just keep it in mind, Kit, if if you ever find a pair on eBay that it's it's gonna cost you a little bit, just only ten grand.
5: You know I'm willing to pay like a decent amount of money for bucks. running shoes. I think eleven thousand might be a little too much. A little much too for much? Me, you know, okay. Just a little bit. All right. Maybe if they had jet packs in them. <laughs>
4: Okay, moving on to I seem it's like we always do crazy records here. We love records. Here's another one um, that involves golfing with running,
5: which just kind of to me seems counterintuitive because I don't golf, but if I did, I'd want to have a beer and a hot dog in hand at all times. Mm -hmm. We have someone who did not do that at all. Brian, what happened?
4: So a guy in New Zealand, his name is Brad Luton. He broke and unofficially he broke a Guinness World Record for the most golf holes played in a 12 hour period he did this over the weekend
5: how many holes did he golf?
4: 237 holes kit wow just so you know so it's an 18 hole course that's 13 rounds total and 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 three extra holes on top of that he broke the previous record of 221 holes pretty easily
5: how does running have to do it with this because he could just be in like a souped up golf cart right
4: yeah, I mean, he ran the whole thing. He only played with a six iron. So he's hitting a <laughs> six iron off of every yeah. tee. And there are like really other interesting elements to it because he's been practicing speed golf. It's an actual sport. Like his fellow New Zealander, Nick Willis, is really good at speed golf. Uh,
5: Elite runner. And An myler. elite
4: runner, yeah. So he kind of picked it up by seeing Nick Willis do this. So he's been practicing for a long time.
5: So he basically, you know, tees off of the six iron, hits it as far and accurate as he can, mm-hmm. sprints to the ball and just keeps that one club just keeps going and how far did he run
4: in total just under a 100k so 98k he told our reporter monica and um so that's about 62 miles he'd never run that far he's not an ultra runner he's like more of a 10k guy and a half marathon guy so he's always trained and he does a lot of running he has like a long run streak but he has never run that far in a single amount of time
5: all right, so clearly his running is super impressive, but I mean, is this guy like a good golfer? How do you do?
4: He he is a pretty good scratch golfer like when he's regularly playing. Surprisingly, he only plays regular golf a few times a year, he said, because of his family, but he's more into speed golf now. His his best score ever is an 81. And in this 12-hour period, he actually shot an 84 on this course, which is better than I've ever played regular golf. Fun,
5: fun fact, Brian, my best score is an 82 mm-hmm. Mini on, golf. on a, a nine-hole course. Okay, congrats. Thank kid. you.
4: And he did that in 44 minutes, by the way. Oh, my god! So He did say his average was between about a 95 and a 105 on most holes. He, he said he hit the wall. Physically after 10 rounds, but knew the record was in reach, so he okay. kept going. Um, but, yeah, super impressive on even the golf, especially with just a six iron. All right. And the course wasn't shut down. Like, he had to play through people.
5: <laughs> so uh... – Tiger Woods, I know you're a huge fan of the podcast. Um, <laughs> you're back playing Tiger, so I think that gauntlet's been thrown. I'd love to see if you could uh, you know, break this record or at least shoot an 84 in and 44 minutes. Maybe
4: Tiger's a runner. We don't know. Who knows? We could find that out. Yeah, All let
5: right. us know, Tiger.
4: Okay, so the final thing on the kick this week, I actually want to go back to a story from last week. We talked about Jacob Pusey. He set a speed record for running 50 miles on a treadmill in four hours and 57 minutes and 45 seconds. I couldn't believe it.
5: So just under five hours on a treadmill, Mm -hmm. bar none, impressive that sounds terrible. And he also ran 50 miles in that amount of time, right? Yeah, so okay.
4: super fast. And I believe I said to Chris Michael, I don't know how you can do that, whether it was in the studio or beforehand, but how do you do that? So it's, we actually talked with Jacob, we had a reporter reach out and he gave us his tips on how he's able to run so long on the treadmill, not only for this attempt, but he trains on it regularly.
5: Okay, what are the tips? Okay, so the, 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 ones, terrible?
4: the ones that stand out is one of my favorites. Just, you know, have a good workout on there, like a fartlek. So a couple minutes hard, couple minutes easy. That's simple. Yeah. The other good thing, tip. I think it's one of your main items on the treadmill is like have something good to watch like oh, on yeah. television. So Parks what, and Rec, so, shout out. So Parks and Rec would be kind of your binge thing. Yeah, right now. exactly. Last week I said I would need a good HGTV marathon, but actually it would be like re-watching Westworld. <sighs> You're West such World. a
5: married person. Yeah.
4: Actually, we've been watching Westworld, so I would want to have to okay, go back and watch that again. So yeah. find something yeah, good okay. on maybe HBO to get through. He also likes to run with like a course on the treadmill screen so you know that would be a good chance for me to actually run boston
5: so the only time you'll ever get to run boston exactly
4: the only time i'll get to run Zing! Boston is Sorry, on a treadmill mean. yeah um and then you know have good tunes he liked bob marley what are you listening to right
5: now oh kid? no i mean this is gonna sound cliche but the hamilton mixtape soundtrack. oh well that's good you find
4: that's great for running
5: it's just a great soundtrack so uh you know it's great for any time but running too Okay. okay. Yeah.
4: And then the final thing that really makes sense is like, it's often hard to like nail down your nutrition on a mm-hmm. long run. You know, you have to fumble with a, the chews in your shorts or something like that. And it's like everything's right there in front of you your water, your gels, your chews. So, like, you have that right there with you. I mean, in my example, it would be a donut right there in front of me.
5: I just, that brings to mind uh, just a, a great product idea mm-hmm. treadmill fridge. Oh, like just a fridge connected, yeah, to just the a side. fridge connected to the treadmill. Mm-hmm. Where you can have a cool beverage or junk food.
4: I love that. The good Hopefully no one steals yeah. that idea. You need to get to the you need to get that patent going. Do
5: you know what I'm gonna call it? Please tell me. The coolest treadmill around.
4: Awesome. Awesome. So, check out the treadmill tips on our episode 33 show page on runnersworld.com/audio. Um, you can get more of jacob's tips there um kit thanks for coming down and doing the kick once again it, it's been a few weeks
5: i know it has thank you i've missed it
0: that's it for this week's show well almost we've heard from a bunch of you about your running date stories thank you we are still collecting these so if you want to share your best or your worst on the run dating experiences just sum up that workout in a brief note and email it to us at rwaudio at rodale, that's R-O-D-A-L-E dot com. You can also reach us on our Facebook page, Runners World Audio, or tweet us, the super short version, at rwaudio. We're working on an episode about Dating on the Run, and we just might use your story. Okay, that's it. Thanks again to all of you for the ratings and reviews. They really help us make the show better. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World, and this week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, Brian Dalek, and Alex Ward. Be sure to join us next week when we talk to someone who actually hurt me during our interview. That would be Joe DeSena, the founder and CEO of The Spartan Race. So I started putting on events in 2001, lost money at every event I put on, um, but it was a blast. It was blessed because I love roping people in and torturing them. Trust me, you do not want to miss this show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.